Hey everybody, welcome to another Sermon Extra. This week we're looking at the Sermon Extra from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 8, which we looked at this past Sunday as really an uh, investigation of salvation. This, what we called a power-packed gospel sentence that has enough power in it to motivate good works our whole life long. That as we look at how God in salvation displays his goodness, his graciousness, and his generosity. It compels us and inspires us as we delight in his salvation to imitate it, that we might become people who love to practice goodness, who love to be gracious, and delight to be generous. Um, two things I want to zoom in on this week, um, but first I should just note that uh, you might have noticed there was no sermon extra last week, and um, if you see that happen, it's probably just because I didn't have anything extra to say. I might have laid it all out in the sermon, and so there was no real other thoughts on my mind. So that's why there wasn't one last week. Uh, this week, the two things I want to focus on, the first is I want to zoom in on the idea of um, love for humanity, what we looked at that Greek word philanthropia. Um, at the beginning, as descriptive, descriptive of God's heart and salvation, that he, that the philanthropia or l generous love or love for humanity of God appeared for people. And then, second, I want to look at a um, look at this text through the lens of systematic theology and see what it tells us about the Ordo Salutis, which we'll get to. So, hang on to your seatbelts. Uh, so first, uh, we we were told at the beginning this text says that when the goodness and philanthropia, or love for people, of God appeared, he saved us. And we said that part of the heart of God in salvation is out of this philanthropia, this Greek word that means love for people. And um, I really see in this the idea, uh, of course you hear the word philanthropy, and if you trace the origins of the word philanthropy etymologically throughout history, you see that it comes over time to gain that more um, financial, charitable giving context that it has today. So uh, this word originally did not have this uh, financial association necessarily with it, which for us I think is best understood in the idea of altruism, which is defined as the practice of selfless concern for the well-being of others, or devotion to the welfare of others what we in Christianity might often refer to as love for neighbor. And I like this idea of altruism because I think love for neighbor can often be a nebulous concept to us. It might seem like, oh, I just have to have a charitable disposition in my heart towards my neighbor or just not hate them. Or if it's like the Good Samaritan, if they're dying on the side of the road, I should help them. But this idea of altruism means that we ought to have um, this self-denying, selfless concern that other people have good done to them, that their lives flourish, to be devoted to the welfare of others. And I was convicted thinking of um, how just little I feel like we often focus on this concept of altruism in the church. And it's really been an idea co-opted by our secular world. Um, it was interesting, I was listening to a podcast recently with the founder of an organization called Give What We Can. Um, they have a website, givewhatwecan.org, and it's part of a movement what's called effective altruism. And effective altruism is a philosophical movement that's current, um, originating from the work of Peter Singer. And basic, the basic idea for them was, hey, we want to be able to do the most good for the world with giving um, the least amount of money, or like what gets you the biggest bang for your buck charity-wise. They're like, you know, you could spend 30000 
to improve one person's life a little bit? Or what if you could spend $30,000 to improve 3 million people's lives a little bit? So they really focus on giving to things that they think have the biggest net effect. So they've discovered things like, um, like malaria nets. Um, you can save hundreds of lives for, um, for not that much money. So that's kind of the goal of people who believe in effective altruism is that we want to do as much good as absolutely possible. And there's, um, there is something good there. Um, I think they miss um, in Christian ethics that we do understand circles of obligation, that you have a greater obligation to your family first, then your church, then community, than necessarily everybody in the world equally. But there's this heart that just wants to do as much good as possible, to improve the lives of as many people as possible. And it's interesting just the connections and similarities we see to Christian charity and generosity in this movement. Um, the, the founder was, as he was thinking through these ideas, he found himself wondering, how much should I give away? If I could improve so many other people's lives, where does it stop? And he slipped into what we in Christianity have often called poverty theology. That's just, well, I could live on less. I don't have to own a car. I don't have to own a table. I don't need to own more than one shirt, whatever it is. And um, Spurgeon talked about this, how saying, you know, if a, if a silk handkerchief is too fancy and too expensive to own, then you, you'll downgrade to a cotton handkerchief. And then you'll realize that's too much and you'll downgrade to this kind of fabric, then to this kind of fabric. And eventually you have no handkerchief at all. And it's really this thought of where does it stop? And so interestingly then, this uh, non-Christian guy into giving, he decided for himself that the best way to live then, so that he doesn't always have this guilt of I could be living on left less, was to predetermine an amount of his income to give away. And just know that he's rationally determined I will give away this much and just be content with the rest and not always be wondering or having guilt about what I should be doing, doing more, doing less. And go figure, he comes up with the number of 10%, that it seems like it's a wise amount to give 10% of your income away to charity. Hmm, I think I've heard that before, hey? Maybe someone else came up with that idea first. And so this giving what we can campaign is sort of a pledge that people agree to and they sign it and say, I will agree to give 10% of my money, of my income to charity. It's interesting, and that in that same way, when we give as Christians 10% of our income, um, it, it, it's almost a freeing idea, because then you're not always wondering, am I doing enough, am I not? You predetermine what to give, and then just, um, you can fling off that guilt that comes from never thinking you're doing enough, or could always be doing a little bit more. And um, not that I think it's a 100% mandated um, rule in the New Testament, but giving 10% seems to be the way of wisdom and accords with many of the principles of scripture to the church. Um, but I would challenge us, if you are giving faithfully to your local church, I often wonder if we're giving at all to other sorts of organizations, things that are doing good in this world, whether Christian charities or ones that are, you know, doing ma malaria nets to help save lives. And I wonder if on that front too, we could also predetermine to give a particular percentage of our income to other things apart from just our giving to the church. Um, I really liked what Tim Keller talked about with the practice of generosity and giving 
for Christians, his principle that he outlines is he says that your standard of living should be noticeably less than people in your same income bracket. So if you have your coworkers at work and you know that you all generally make about the same amount of money, they should at times wonder why you don't quite live it up as much as they do because the amount you're giving away makes you unable to engage at that same level of lifestyle. You know, so maybe if it's if they're going on three vacations a year, you afford two, depending on your income bracket, you know, that sort of thing. Or, you know, they, they notice that, that your house is just, it's a bit less nice than theirs. Your car is a bit less nice than theirs. Your clothes are a bit less nice than theirs. Whatever it be, but just this idea that if we are sacrificing some percentage of our income, it means that we are going to be living at a slightly less standard than those making the same as us. And hopefully that people see that that is a sacrifice. You could be spending more on yourself. You could be having a nicer, more enjoyable life, but you choose not to because you value generosity. And as an altruistic person, you have a selfless, a disinterested concern for the well-being of others. You're devoted to doing good and to doing good generously. Um, it's really cool, this word philanthropia, it occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and it occurs in Acts 28. And I thought this was a, just a cool story that gives a picture of what this sort of heart of um, altruism might look like. So it's when Paul, he's on the ship as a slave, or not a slave, a, um, a prisoner going to Rome. Um, with the army. He's appealed to Rome, and if you remember, they set sail, and people warn them, hey, this is a bad time of year to sail, there's bad storms, and what do you know, they get caught in a storm, they sailed anyways, the ship gets shipwrecked, and they get, um, and they, but they do make it safely to this island, the island of Malta. So we pick this up in Acts 28, verses 1 to 2. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, that is, unusual philanthropia, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Just a simple act here of kindness, of love for humanity, of philanthropia, of concern for the well-being of others. These cold, wet um, people, they kindle a fire for them and welcome them, feed them, care for them. And we might think, well, of course, anyone would do that. But think of who these people were. For one, these are Roman soldiers, people who are hostily taking over many nations who rule with an iron fist. And you would think naturally the people of Malta would not want to welcome enemy soldiers to their land. Furthermore, it's enemy soldiers holding convicted prisoners and criminals. So these people that they would be welcome to the island are their enemies and criminals. Not to mention that they are people who foolishly avoided good advice. And so how they, they sailed at a time when storms were high. And so how easy could it have been for these natives to be like, hey, our resources are scarce. We don't have enough to care for these outsiders. We don't need, we don't want to welcome these soldiers and these criminals. Um, and later when Paul gets bit by the viper, they revert to this sort of thinking, ah, justice hasn't allowed him to live. They could easily have thought, these people are foolish. These people are soldiers and criminals. They brought this destruction upon themselves. Let's just get away and care for ourselves. Why waste our resources helping them? But their heart was motivated by an unusual kindness. 
a love for their fellow neighbors. And so they kindle a fire for them. They welcome them. They have a heart like this. And again, just like these effective altruists, this is a unbelieving movement. These are pagans that are showing this sort of love for neighbor that us as Christians are called to. And so I think, you know, for us, in what ways are, could we be inspired by these people of Malta? And really, we ought to be called to a far higher standard than this. So when we have people showing up in our, in our lives, showing up into our nation who have been brought there through destructive and dangerous means, um, soldiers, criminals, um, whatsoever, if people are in genuine need, we ought to have a heart of love for humanity that reaches out in an unusual kindness to warm the cold, to welcome the stranger. Um, what does uh, Christ talk about in Matthew 25? Um, they say, when did, when did we see you, Lord? And it's in the clothing the naked, visiting the prisoners, caring for orphans and widows, giving a cup of cold water in Christ's name, feeding the hungry. When we see people in distress, when we see our fellow image bearers of God suffering, our heart ought to be one of altruism, of good generosity, of graciousness, of desiring to sacrifice for their good. And now, although I believe we should be able to agree that this should be our heart disposition towards everyone, you know, questions do come of application of, especially when we're looking at really big things on a national scale or a statewide scale, the question becomes, well, what is the most loving thing to do in the situation? What is the kindest way to treat people? And those are questions up for debate. Uh, people come to different conclusions on what sort of methodologies, um, economic policies, immigration policies might do best in these sorts of situations. But I just think we have to be so agreed in our heart that we want God to work a deep um, philanthropia in our hearts, a love for humanity that... Um, whatever we think the solutions might be, that we have a deep care for the sufferings of others. Because we have more motivation to this than anyone. God showed this great love for humanity in paying the highest price of his own son, of meeting us in our undeservingness, in our sin and hostility to God, while we were his enemies. Like we're told in Romans 5, 6, um, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're called to reflect God in showing love for sinners because Christ showed us love while we were still his enemies and sinners. And therefore, Christians, again, ought to be the most altruistic people, the most willing to sacrifice, to give generously, to lift up those who are poor and oppressed and struggling. The, there's four groups that occur repeatedly in the Old Testament, and nations are judged by how well they care for the most vulnerable groups of society. And the four groups that show up again and again and again, you could do a word search on this in the Old Testament, um, are widows, orphans, the poor, and the stranger. Widows, orphans, poor, and stranger. And this even, that, that continues through the New Testament. And so we especially show our love for humanity when we reach out to those that 
can't really offer us anything in return, who don't have the resources to invite us back. As that parable Jesus told said, like, don't invite those who have as many means as you and could invite you back as a house guest. Invite, go into the highways and the hedges, invite the poor, the lame, the blind, the maim, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. So let's be challenged to that. Okay, that was part one. I wanted to look at the idea of Christian altruism. Secondly, I want us to take a systematic theology look through this text. Um, There's different ways we can approach scriptures. Um, Four of them mainly, and this is really the four schools that they teach in a seminary. So the first way you look at a text is exegetically. You practice exegetical theology, which is looking at the original languages, parsing the grammar, looking at the context. And the goal here is really just to ascertain the meaning of that specific text. Secondly, you could look at this text in a way of what we call biblical theology, putting it in the context of the whole Bible, seeing how this text connects to what comes before it, seeing how it connects to what comes after it in the historical narrative of scripture. How does this relate to creation, to fall, to redemption, to the covenants, to glorification? Then you can look at it in what we call a systematic way to practice systematic theology to say, where do the topics or ideas of this text pop up otherwhere, other places, and how do they inform each other? So how could we create a systematic, comprehensive picture of this idea throughout scripture? And lastly, you could look at it through the lens of pastoral theology. How does this apply to my life? How does this apply to the church? And this text in particular is packed full of systematic theological connections. And what it, the, the part of theology that this really connects to is our soteriology or doctrine of salvation. And particularly here, it gives us um, a really concise idea of what, what we call the ordo salutis, uh, just a fancy Latin way of saying the order of salvation. And so in Reformed theology, when we look at salvation as an idea, we see that salvation encompasses many different parts, or there's many different blessings or works of God attendant with salvation. Uh, Salvation is kind of a comprehensive term we use to describe all the good things God does for us in Jesus. And we talk about an order of salvation, or an ordo salutis again, and what this is, it's It's not necessarily um, a perfect chronological order, like this happens, then this, then this, but it's a logical order of salvation. Um, So if we look at it, um, I'll I'll try to link to this in the show notes, but there's a really nice um, infographic um, from Chali's Visual Theology on the Ordo Salutis. And these are the ones he has, and this reflects a pretty generic reformed order. Okay, so if we're looking at an order of salvation, what are the blessings God does for his people? We would start with election, that in eternity past, God chooses of his good pleasure some people to be saved. Uh, These are descriptions from Chalice. Then calling, where God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel, so they respond in saving faith. Third, regeneration, how God secretly and sovereignly imparts spiritual life to those who have been called. Fourth, conversion, where we willingly respond to the gospel call, repenting of sin, placing our faith in Christ for salvation. Fifth, justification, that instantaneous legal act of God in which he declares that our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is ours. Sixth, adoption, an act of God in which he makes us members of his family. Seventh, sanctification, 
a progressive lifelong work of God and man that frees us from sin and makes us more like Christ. Eighth, perseverance, that all those who are justified will be kept by God's power and persevere as Christians to the end of their lives. And ninth, glorification, that God will finally remove all trace of sin from the Christian and give him a resurrection body. So this order of salvation, all the way from election to glorification, is how we describe what God does for us in salvation. It's a logical ordering, if not always perfectly chronological. And we actually see most of these elements pop up in this text. And we didn't use these sort of terms in the sermon because it's more exegetical and pastoral. It, it doesn't do as much systematic theology. But if we were to look at this, this text through the um, theological categories of the Ordo Salutis, it's really interesting because it actually, I would say, I would argue that it encompasses all of them. All nine of them. Well, actually, eight of them. I personally wouldn't put perseverance in the Ordo Salutis. I think that that is a logical implication of um, regeneration, justification, adoption. I, don't, I wouldn't really put it in its own category. So I would, I would subtract that and just leave it at eight. And as a side note, it's helpful to note that the one unifying factor that connects all these aspects of the Ordo Salutis is union with Christ. Union with Christ is the prime theological category um, in which we receive all these blessings. Okay, so let's look at this in the text. Um, ver Titus 3 verse 4 says that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So there's that word salvation, that all-encompassing holistic salvation. And so now you know that we're looking at the idea of salvation. Now what are we going to be told about the blessings or the order of this salvation? And this is not going to be in the exact order of the um, official ordo salutis, but I think we'll, we'll see all these elements as they come up. So first, I want to look at the idea of calling. Calling, theologically, we, we um, consider two kinds of calling as part of salvation. First is an outward call, which is that human proclamation of the gospel. And second is the internal or effectual call, where the spirit attaches to that outward call and truly... Um, calls the heart to himself. And where do I see calling in here? It says that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And how does it appear? It appears in the preaching of the gospel or the outward call. This is how Paul uses this idea back in chapter 1 verse 3. He says that at the proper time, God manifested his salvation in his word through the preaching of with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So that is, salvation was manifested, or it appeared, through preaching. And so the goodness and loving kindness of God, the Savior, it appears in preaching. That is the outward call. But when we move from it's appeared to he's saved us, that means that that appearance affected a work that became saving. So there we have outward call, moving to inward call, that it appeared in the preaching of gospel, but then God worked through the preaching of the gospel to work a salvation in the heart. So there we see calling. Secondly, we see election, where we're told that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So that is to say that God's salvation 
is based not on anything in the human agent, but, or the human subject rather, but it's based according to his own mercy. That is his merciful character or his merciful will. And so if salvation is based on God's will to show mercy, that means that in his will, he chooses to whom he will show that mercy. Just like Romans 9 teaches us that he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So that is, in a, election is God's choice of, again, as Romans 9 would say, to have vessels to whom he shows mercy. And they're also, on the flip side, of that means that there's vessels who are prepared for destruction, ones to whom are not going to be shown mercy. This is God's election. That God's election means that his salvation comes to the ones he's chosen to show mercy. It's not because he looked into the future and said, oh, I think those people are going to believe in me, therefore I'll be merciful to them. It's no, though no one deserved it, everyone deserved to just keep running headlong into the cliff and the pit of destruction. He chooses just of his goodness and grace, his mercy, to show salvation to some. This is God's election, his choice of recipients of mercy. And then he continues how the saving work is affected. It's by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus, our Savior. So here we see that aspect of regeneration. Regeneration, theologically, we talk about as doing that picture of the Old Testament where the stony heart, the unbelieving heart is removed, and the Holy Spirit gives a new heart of flesh, a heart that now instead of being hateful towards God, loves God. A heart that instead of being disbelieving and hostile is now believing and willing. It's a, it's a changing of the will. And now this word regeneration in the text is not packing into it everything we think about with the doctrinal word regeneration. The doctrinal word regeneration we use to, um, to pull in a bunch of different concepts. Because the only other time this word in the Greek is actually used is referring to the end times in the regeneration of all things, where it's talking about more how the world will be restored. But this concept of regeneration paired with this idea of renewal very much gives us that concept of new creation. Um, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. That's the idea of generation, regeneration, that you've been made new by the Spirit in union with Christ, to be a fitting recipient of the blessings of salvation. We also call this definitive sanctification. Definitive sanctification means that in the spirit, we've been definitively set apart, made holy. That's all in this idea of regeneration. And it's all so that being justified by his grace. Ah, here we have justification. That is being counted righteous in Christ, because he has paid for the forgiveness of our sins, justification theologically refers to our legal standing before God. And so if you bring together this calling, this regeneration, and this justification, what it means now is that now being cleansed from our sin, being made new creatures, we're fit to be welcomed into God's family. And so because of the work of Christ, we now it says at the end of verse 7, so that we might become heirs. 
and who are heirs but the children. The children of the parents are the ones that get the inheritance. They're the heirs. And this harkens to that idea of adoption, that the father welcomes people into his family through Christ, their elder brother, that they might sit at his table, be his beloved children. Adoption. And this is all according to the hope of eternal life. There we have the idea of glorification, that final culmination of this ordo salutis in the end when we have eternal, never-ending life. Not just existence, but abundance, blessing, um, love, joy, peace. This is our hope. This is the end to which God has called us. And I think we see more, actually, even going into verse 8. Another element, I think we see conversion. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be carefully devoted to good works. So he's saying all these things come to, all these things are true of the one who has believed in God. That is the one who has been converted. The concept of conversion includes two mirrored concepts, the ideas of faith and repentance. And the idea of conversion is turning around, doing a 180, leaving, following after self on the road to destruction and turning to follow God on the road of life. And faith and repentance are like two sides of the same coin. So if you imagine yourself walking down a road and you turn 180, the turning away from the bad path is repentance and the turning towards the good path is faith. There are two different ways to look at the same metaphysical concept in the Christian heart. And so, yes, we're right to talk about repentance. It's a turning away, but faith is a turning towards And they always go together. Faith and repentance can never be separated because faith and repentance comprise the act of conversion, like two sides of the same coin. It's those who have believed in God. And to be believing in God is to be repenting of sin. They go necessarily together. And lastly, we're told that it's so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, a careful devotion of good to good works is sanctification. Not definitive sanctification, but progressive sanctification. That is, all our life, as the blessings of salvation work, as we grow into, live up to what we've attained, we become progressively more like Christ in our actual life. We're seen in Christ's righteousness definitively before God's throne, but now in the actual outworking of it, we want to progressively become more and more holy, which is part of a careful devotion to good works devoted to carefully keeping God's law, to loving God, to loving our neighbors, to worshiping and working all for the glory of God. This is sanctification. And so you see there, we get eight elements of the order of salvation in one sentence, which is why I said Sunday night, you've got to memorize this verse. You've got, or this sentence, you've got to memorize Titus 3, 4 to 7, because it packs so much in it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, according to the hope of eternal, that, so, that we, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In that one sentence, or I guess two sentences if you include verse 8, you have calling, election, regeneration, justification, adoption, glorification, conversion, and sanctification. What a beautiful truth. What a great and glorious God we have. And these are the qualities. All these things are um, every aspect of salvation. Each one of these, it reveals God's goodness in meeting our greatest need. It reveals God's graciousness because in all of them we were undeserving. And it reveals God's generosity because he paid the highest price for them and gives us richly in all these things. And therefore, as we delight in these truths, we ourselves are inspired to seek to reflect that goodness, that graciousness, that generosity in this world, which brings us back to that idea of altruism, that if God has been so generous to us, how could we not sacrifice some of our comforts in order to seek the well-being, to do good, to show mercy to those in this world? As Christ says to his disciples, freely you've received, freely give.